Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about animals and the big questions they raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. In 2020, the beloved poet Amy Nozuka Matatil published her first nonfiction book, World of Wonders, in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. In the book's 30 dazzling essays, Nozuka Matatil weaves love stories about being a daughter, a partner, a mother, and a teacher, with a reverence for wild animals and plants and what they give us, their ability to expand our imagination and empathy, to connect us to others, to unearth memories, to break our habits of thinking, to teach us lessons big and small, and perhaps most of all, to simply leave us gobsmacked, humbled, and thrilled to remember that creatures like narwhals and newts exist in this world. Reading Nizuka Matatil's essays, I dare say it is impossible to not feel that it is a profoundly exciting and moving thing to be an animal enmeshed in a web of relationships with such wildly magical creatures as cardinals and frogs. At a time when reflection on the natural world is often defined by despair and loss, Netsukumatatil's work is exuberant and full of contagious joy for the beauty and kinship that the world still offers us. The daughter of a Filipina mother and a Malayali Indian father, Netsukumatatil writes about human and non-human organisms she has learned from and who have shaped her. The peacocks that she fell madly in love with as an eight-year-old on her first trip to India and then proudly drew in class in small-town Iowa, only to be reprimanded by her teacher for not drawing an American animal. The beloved and lost pet cockatiel, Chico, that her parents spent hours frantically searching for and eventually found safe and sound on the tip-top of their persimmon tree. The superb bird of paradise, whose spectacular courtship moves parallel the ebullient synchronicity of the dance floor at her wedding when the DJ played the Macarena. The fireflies that remind her of summer nights with her parents and sister in their Oldsmobile. It was no surprise to Amy Nizuka Matatil's readers that World of Wonders became a New York Times bestseller and was named Barnes & Noble's 2020 Book of the Year. Amy is also the author of Lace and Pyrite, a collaboration of epistolary garden poems with Ross Gay, and of four previous poetry collections, most recently Oceanic. Her work has received many honors, including the Guggenheim Fellowship and the Pushcart Prize. When she's not busy chatting with birds in her backyard, she is a professor of English and creative writing in the University of Mississippi's MFA program, and the first ever poetry editor of Sierra, the storytelling arm of the Sierra Club. We are thrilled to get to speak with her today. Amy Nizuka Matatel, welcome. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much. That was such a lovely intro. Your book is, is just such a rich, masterful interweaving of natural history and then your own personal history. You were born in 1974 in Chicago to a Filipina mother and a Malayali Indian father and moved to six different states across the U.S. as a child. Could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and how your upbringing and your parents shaped your love of nature? Yeah, um, well, it's it's funny. They, um, I, I I love starting out with this little thing. Uh, this little detail is that they were, but which doesn't really have anything to do with nature. But I just it tickles me so much. Um, they were both Elvis Presley fans. Uh, my mom <laughs> in the Philippines loved Elvis. Watched all his movies. My dad had his. You know, he's in his twenties. He had his hair in a pompadour because he loved <laughs> Elvis in South in South India, and they met in Chicago. You know, so um, their mutual friends kind of brought them together and said, "Hi, do you know that there's a 
you know, Filipino doctor who just loves Elvis as much as you do, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, and now it's funny, you know, 40 something years later, um, I live 45 minutes away from Graceland, Elvis's home. So <laughs> amazing. And never, it, it is a, a strange kind of wild um, ride. But yeah, I, I moved around a lot as a kid. My mom, uh, my parents are retired now, but my mom was a psychiatrist and her contracts were such that you know, about every four years we had to move um, so that she could work at a different mental health institute. So some of these places we had homes of our own, and some of these places we lived on the grounds of mental institutes. So uh, that made for a very colorful childhood. But yet throughout all of that moving around, I just, it's kind of funny. You would think that, oh, that seems like kind of a pitiful, weird, sad existence. But I just remember it overall being filled with so much joy and um, and wonder because I never felt truly, truly alone. Um, my, my dad at a young age helped us learn how to read uh, the sky with constellations, you know, so that if I was in the suburbs of Phoenix or in central Ohio or western New York, I can look up and see my old friends again. So wherever they were, their own love language and their own kind of common passion together is gardening. They always made sure that my younger sister and I knew the names of plants and animals wherever we were as, as they were learning to this new terrain, their new home. Um, as well. So they didn't know that they were setting the stage for a writer. You know, they, I think they very much hoped that I would follow in their footsteps and be a doctor, but it was actually the best learning um, for a nature writer out there. You know, it's just, they helped me be a noticer, uh, someone who stops and, and kind of takes note and, and stays curious, you know, without ever having to be told, you know. One of the early essays in the book focuses on fireflies and, and your memories of fireflies and, and your family as you were growing up. And I was wondering if you could tell us about these early memories and then also read a portion of that essay. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, fireflies for me was one of those animals um, in my childhood that I feel so enamored of because they signaled to me just kind of long periods of time where I was outside, you know, and, you know, I'm dating myself here, but this is before the world of um, the internet, before cell phones. And no matter where we were, be it in a mental hospital or our backyard, my parents very much wanted us to be just outside. Now, at the time, I thought, oh, gosh, you know, why, you know, so-and-so has video games. Why why can't we have that? But it actually was the greatest gift that they gave mm-hmm. us because my younger sister and I, we had to entertain ourselves outside. So Fireflies, for me, sets up that time when I had time to daydream, which is kind of the biggest tool for a writer Um, and just that practice of again finding entertainment but solace and comfort and joy from something that doesn't require electricity you know and for me Mm -hmm. that was fireflies and it's something that I've been able to see across the country in various places so uh, five years ago when I moved to Mississippi I was so pleased to see that I was in an environment where fireflies were abundant and that my own children could have that kind of sense of wonder and awe 
when I give them the time, you know, in a world full of electricity and, you know, electronical games and, and things like that, um, that I could say, hey, you know, let's, let's pause for a minute and turn to fireflies. So I think what I'd like to do is maybe read a little bit. Um, this is from the opening essay of my book, World of Wonders. And I actually bookend my, my collection with fireflies mm-hmm. and then a second fireflies essay because I wanted to kind of showcase that, that learning that I did throughout my whole life just didn't end when I turned 18, you know, that I came back to, you know, still finding new things that I love about fireflies as a mother and as a partner and um, as an educator now. Um, but this, what I'm going to read for you here is... Um, Maybe a little bit more from the first chapter of Fireflies and just to set up, again, just kind of remembering Fireflies as almost like that that lighthouse for me of remembering those slow summer days um, when my whole family was together uh, and it just it just seemed magical. So here's um, here's a couple chapters from that. For a beetle. Fireflies live long and full lives, around two years, though most of it is spent underground, gloriously eating and sleeping to their heart's content. When we see these beacons flashing their lights, they usually only have one or two weeks left to live. Learning this as a child, I could often be found walking slowly around untrimmed lawns, stalling and not quite ready to go inside for dinner. It made me melancholy even in the face of their brilliance. I couldn't believe something so full of light would be gone so soon. I know I will search for fireflies all the rest of my days, even though they dwindle a bit more each year. I can't help it. They blink on and off, a lime glow to the summer night air, as if to say, I am still here, you are still here. I am still here, you are still here. I am... You are over and over again. Perhaps I can will it to be true. Perhaps I can keep those summer nights with my family inside an empty jam jar with holes poked in the lid, a twig and a few strands of grass tucked inside. And for those unimaginable nights in the future, when I know I'll miss my mother the most, I will let that jar's sweet glow serve as a nightlight to cool and cut the air for me. Such a beautiful passage. Thank you so much, Amy, for for sharing that and and reading it. And you mentioned before you read the passage that you do have a second chapter that closes the book called Fireflies Redux, where you talk about the experience of sharing fireflies with your own children. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm wondering, you, you spoke to this a little bit, but your book not only talks about your own childhood, but contains really touching anecdotes of re-experiencing some of this wonder anew through your own two sons. Did raising your two boys change at all how you viewed both your own experience with nature as a child or your experience with nature today? Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's part of, you know, I grew up, I was not one of those kids who said, when I grow up, my family XYZ is going to do this. I didn't honestly, frankly, know that I (laughs) wanted to get married or have kids, you know. So this is really, um, I always like to say, I am kind of relearning these wonders of the world as kind of not as, not as like a leader towards my kids, but kind of as, as a 
co-guide. Like they guide me just as much. Obviously, like I'm the one who can drive. I'm the one who can, uh, you know, buy them binoculars now and things like that. But they absolutely um, point out things that I myself didn't notice or had the vocabulary for when I was a kid. So, for example, there's an essay in this book that is, I call it a found essay, where I was, literally, we were on a a bird watch and I had a notebook in hand. uh, And so it was really I feel guilty in some ways saying that I wrote it. I really just kind of (laughs) arranged the lines, you know, because in all actuality, I was just taking down notes of what my, my boys were saying, um, then ages, um, six and nine. And, you know, we were bird watching and, and, and amidst the, you know, many questions of mom, I have to go to the bathroom or (laughs) where's the bathroom, you know, they would also, it kind of took my breath away and there's no way, I can make this stuff up. Like, I I was just so glad I had a, I mean, I didn't even have my phone with me. So I was really just old school writing as fast as I could. They would start talking about cardinals and, you know, how the female cardinal is brown, they noticed, and the the male cardinal is is red. And then it just kind of took my breath away. The conversation started veering towards, you know, like, you know, we talked about camouflage and how that's good for the mama. But then they started talking about how scared they were that the male cardinal was um, red and not being able to camouflage. And that, you know, it just, it also was the first time for me that they brought up, and it, and it just happened all while we were bird watching. It's the first time they started kind of correlating that to hiding and what it means to hide, how they have had to hide for um, their own lockdown experiences. Mm-hmm. And again, this mm-hmm. is my child in first grade who had practiced, and I didn't even know they hadn't, you know, the teachers hadn't given us the heads up that they were practicing um, how to be in lockdown for school shootings. Oh, gosh. And so, so that vo- kind of vocabulary, I absolutely did not have that knowledge growing up or that kind of wisdom in, in a, in a in a weird way to say, oh, um, uh, this bird can camouflage. It's good so that they can hide. No one will hurt them. But what about daddy? He, he sticks out, you know, like he, they were saying, mm-hmm. it was, I'm not going to repeat the whole, that whole essay, but they were making the connection. Like they were talking about their skin color. And again, I just, I didn't, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. It was almost kind of like, we don't talk about these things when, when I was six or nine, you know, things like that, they were saying like, can I camouflage? Can I hide even though I'm half brown? You know, that kind of thing. And I was like, you know, so uh, other bits, I was like, what do you mean hide, hide? And that's how the conversation came to lockdown. And I was mm. like, oh my gosh. I, it just, it took the breath, my breath away because they were making these kind of heartbreaking connections that I never... I never even dreamed of when I was outside, you know? I mean, we didn't even, I didn't even know what a lockdown was or the need for it at the time. So yeah, it, it absolutely changes. Um, you know, I never want to be one of those people that says, well, as a mom, I'm completely changed. Mm-hmm. But I, I throw this back to my kids is that they, they are experiencing the outdoors in a very different way than I am. So I mean it hundred percent when I say they're also my guide, I'm learning so much from them how they process the world too. I, I loved that essay that you spoke about. It was both profound and 
hilarious simultaneously (laughs) and that your boys have a whole series of questions related to whether or not birds wink that just brought me tremendous delight but um but the 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 context that you provided was was so fascinating too and I think it is another topic that you touch on in the book is race and and nature um and and you've I know that you you served as poetry editor for Orion magazine for for five years and now are leading poetry for Sierra and have spoken about how how you know traditionally nature writing has been very white and very mm-hmm. confined to you know certain people who look a certain way, and I'm curious if you could speak about what your vision is for sort of the future of um, of, of poetry in magazines like this, and and it's a future that you've played a key role in in ushering in. Um, oh. And we'd love to hear hear more about that and sort of how it's evolved. And uh, and I think that the story of your son and sons discussing this and and what they see in the birds is just so you know yet another example of why uh you know having this diversity is so incredibly important oh thank you thank you yeah absolutely like I, I just feel so humbled to be in a position where I can you know I, I always hate the word gatekeepers and stuff like that but I just I look at it as more of like I just want to share poems about about the outdoors and and share writing about the outdoors that reflect the world that I want to live in, the world that I want to leave behind for my kids, you know, and that world is full of a rainbow of people. And that mm-hmm. means a diversity in the way people move, the way they love and the way, um, and what their economic backgrounds are as well. You know, I mean, that's the kind of world that I want to live in where people have access to the outdoors who, um, uh, who, who haven't traditionally been represented very often in what has been, you know, grouped by librarians or booksellers um, or the publishing world as nature writing, you know? So that's, I I just feel like it's 2022 and not (laughs) 1952. So our writing should, you know, what we read and what we teach and, and champion and share should reflect that, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I grew up reading Thoreau. I, I grew up, um, swooning over Annie Dillard and um, Terry Tempest Williams and Emerson and so many, so many of the classics, um, Edward Abbey, you know, so, so many of these. I just think, you know, for me, and I, I'm dating myself again, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, literally the only person I was allowed to see on TV that, that my parents showed me and that wasn't they didn't have very many choices to choose from but was a woman named Linda Carter that's Hmm. that's Wonder Woman that's that was the one like (laughs) I I literally did not see anybody else and that's only because she had dark hair you know like that was like the first brunette I remember seeing on television and that is the saddest statement ever you know like but in books and in TV, movies, I watched so much MTV, I never saw anybody that looked like me. Never. And then, you know, I don't know if you all have seen this movie, 16 Candles. <laughs> um, but, but you have, okay, there's a, well, there's a really kind of unfortunate, stereotypical character named um, Long Duck Dong. Oh, no. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's Asian, yeah. And uh, every time he speaks, there's like a, a big gong that, that rings out. I mean, it's, it's horrifying, but that's, that's kind of what Mm -hmm. my teenage years were like. So when you grow up, you know, never seeing yourself in any books, movies, or even just being outside, like breathing outside, it's such a strange 
phenomenon. And again, I didn't have the language for it at all. And but the the few few times I did see an Asian American, uh, they were busy doing math problems or you know solving a computer crisis or something. And, <laughs> and I that was not me. I'm terrible at math. And so it it just what does that do for an Asian American? girl growing up then who loves the outdoors and who also knew the names of plants and trees and animals and and could read the stars and things like that it makes it made me feel like a weirdo um and not in a good way it made me feel like I shouldn't be outside I should stick to math problems or or something like that and so I guess just to answer your question I wanted to see I never saw the few times I did see a woman in environmental literature I didn't see them as a mother. I didn't see them with brown skin. I didn't see them as someone who actually necessarily likes spending time with their husbands, if they had one, or a partner. Someone that wasn't constantly running away. Someone who also liked makeup and pop music, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. I uh, So it was a weirdly isolating reckoning that I had, you know, like all the things that I loved, I didn't see. So it, it just kind of sublimely, I think, told me, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. Stick with something more reasonable, like chemistry and, you know, work on your math, get a math tutor. You know, mm-hmm. So I guess I would just say to that is that I spent, you know, 20 something years when I read about the outdoors, it was about mostly straight white authors from straight white authors and I had to kind of, I, I read with glee and excitement their journeys and their growing ups and their experiences in the outdoors. And so I guess I would just humbly ask people who are, if they're resistant to this, um, like it's, again, it's 2022, maybe try reading outside of people that look like you <laughs> or move like you, you know, like if I, if I could relate in some ways to Thoreau, surely you can find some sense of humanity with me as well, you know, and, and with others and people who are in wheelchairs and people who did not grow up with a lot of money and people who um, are members of the GLBTQ community, you know, like they all are outside too, you know, so it's time to reflect, have writing that reflects that as well. You mentioned sort of wanting to create a world that you wanted your kids to live in and that that also sort of leads into a discussion of sort of what the natural world is, is looking like. And as we, we mentioned, you know, your book is just incredibly joy filled and ebullient and we can really feel your immense sense of wonder, but there are sort of sprinklings of melancholy throughout this. And I think we heard it in that firefly essay you just read. Um, You also have that really remarkable essay uh, about the cassowary, the the bird that's that's mm. disappearing, and the feelings of of empathy towards that, and wanting to foster this um, among people and having them recognize sort of what is happening in the world. Has there been sort of a a shift in your own writing or your own thinking, or how do you sort of reconcile um, this world of wonder with also these sort of feelings of of urgency and and wanting to grow empathy in your readers and and reckon with the profound impacts that we are are facing today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, oh gosh, that's such a smart question. And honestly, it's one that I grapple with every time I sit down to write, you know. Um, and I think what I've, I've come, I might, you know, who knows, my answer might change in another month or, or what. But what I can say today about that is, is that there is so much 
to be sad and scared and worried about for sure. And I, I, this book would be false if I just include kind of my happy experiences, um, uh, interacting with these animals or happy, um, joyful experiences, um, or, you know, just introductions to different plants and animals without kind of that melancholy, without the darkness, without worry. That's just not who I am. That's not, that's not my life either. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't seem accurate, but what I can tell you that, and there, you know, and I'm not a scientist, so I always want to reiterate that. And there are plenty of books out there that are so important and great and um, more elegant about kind of warning us of the impending doom and the destruction. And maybe there's some books too that give a little, that weigh a little heavy on the shame and guilt. And, and maybe some books too that, that cause us to get angry about like, gosh, what is happening here? I'm so mad at our government, you know, that kind of thing. Those are all dearly important and um, needed. But when I came down to the book that I was writing and revising and revising, I was thinking and reflecting on my own life. What are the times that I actually got up off the couch and was motivated to be an activist and motivated to write letters or march or Mm -hmm. do writing campaigns or go out and work, you know, work on conservation projects in the outdoors, you know, things like that. Those were all from instances when I felt love and wonder and um, not not sprung from fear or anger or guilt or anything like that. The times, those times, Mm -hmm. I just kind of almost want to sit down on the couch and put a weighted blanket over me, you know, that kind of thing. Like it's too (laughs) overwhelming. Like other people surely can, you know, um, I'm not prescribing this for anybody. That's just how I react. Like when, when people point fingers at me and start yelling at me, I almost shut down. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, it's hard for me to know. I'm just so overwhelmed. I want to just almost cry, you know. But when I act out of like this fierce urge to protect and want to like protect what I love, that's when I get activated and that's when I get motivated. So I think that was my overarching kind of, I don't want to say it was a goal, but that was my overarching feeling that I had when I was doing the revisions here. I hope that you can feel it on every essay. It was very purposeful that I included uh, animals and plants that I had not had any direct experience with, like the cassowary, for example. I've never seen one in real life. And my hope is that you don't have to have had direct experience or had a pet cassowary to care about it. You can still care about it because you're human and because you love it. And you want to, you, you're just so charmed by it. You want to make sure that it stays alive for the next generations and stuff like that. My hope is that that will extend to humans, that you don't have to have had a black friend or know somebody in the Middle East to sympathize with any of their worries or plights, you know what I mean? Like that you should be able to care because we're human, you know, that kind of thing. So I I don't ignore the kind of the books and the rhetoric that is kind of um, more anger-filled and rightly so and, and, and scary and rightly so and, and worrisome and rightly so, but that's I, I just leave that to other people. The book I wanted to write was based on on kind of like how I how I react and move in this world, and that is I react out of protection for uh, things that I love. I very much felt in all the essays the 
the the wonder converting into empathy for these creatures, including mm. the cassowary, which I don't think I'd ever actually even heard of. I didn't know about oh. this bird. It was incredible animal. Um, <laughs> right? Sent me onto a deep, deep, uh, deep Googling expedition. <laughs> yes. But then also, I, I, I really think you're right and, and hit on something quite profound in terms of the empathy from that wonder then converting into action in mm-hmm. a way. And it reminded yeah. me of coming across a few years ago, a series of studies on awe uh, by a group of psychologists where mm. they had shown, and perhaps you're familiar with these, but they had shown, and, and I think they used awe somewhat similarly to, to how you use wonder, but uh, they had shown a group of uh, subjects in this study, a number of different, I believe it was films of, you know, redwood forests and whitewater rivers and T-Rex skeletons and so forth. And then put them through a series of tests afterwards vis-a-vis mm. a control group mm-hmm. and to see things. And basically the results of the test indicated they would sign their names much smaller. Like if they were asked to describe uh-huh. themselves vis-a-vis uh, their community, that they would embed, they would just in the description embed themselves in the community. And so, so the takeaway was that it, wow. people were much more likely to describe themselves as part of a much bigger group and ah, to be somewhat more compassionate um, and uh, ethical after having had this experience of awe and oh that there's some gosh. like level of transcendence. So it kind of reminded me like, this is obviously exactly what you were just saying oh to you gosh. beforehand, but yeah. that you, you know, you came to it um, independently, which is sort of an interesting example of, you know, traditional science there and, and the, the insights of a, mm-hmm. of a poet and of a, of someone who is spending the time thinking really, uh, you know, coming to the same conclusion in a way indirectly. But anyway, it was just very interesting in terms of... So fascinating. Oh my gosh, yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you if you think of if you think of the poetry as a form of sort of activism and advocacy in that way. Um, you know, I mean, maybe not directly, but I absolutely think of poetry um, as a way to be political, of co- you know, of course, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, I think, again, because people that looked like me were absent from contemporary poetry for so long, contemporary American poetry for so long, even, you know, and I think of um, the wonderful um, poet Toy Derricotte who says joy is an act of resistance, you know, to even like write as an Asian American poet, something like a a kind of a sexy love poem that takes place outside (laughs) or to, you know, to, to write about an endangered species. I think that's absolutely political because my voice is, my speaker was never shown in, in textbooks, if, you know, um, just until recently, you know, that kind of thing. So absolutely, I think it's um, political in that way. But also, I wanted to mention that, that this, this notion of interdependence, absolutely, that was, that's exactly what I was kind of, I love that there's this fascinating um, study on it. It makes me, I think after the, after we record, I'll ask you to send me oh, um, the link of the names, because that's absolutely right up my alley. But honestly, I was just kind of modeling after my parents, you know, who I think, you know, I think everybody or a lot of people think their parents are, especially as a kid, the smartest people in the world, the coolest people in the world. And mm-hmm. um, and I still think that, you know, I mean, I may have gone through like maybe a couple teen years where I was not thinking that, but <laughs> I think that now <laughs> as, as a normal teenager. Um, now, though, I absolutely think they were so, so wise ahead of their time knowing that they had advanced kind of medical degrees and also seeing how they were treated by people who just assumed they Mm -hmm. didn't know English or assumed they didn't know anything about the outdoors or the country that they have called their home now for longer than their birth countries, you know, that kind of thing. Like the times when I saw my parents kind of stand up straight and not you know, be demeaned or anything like that is when they were outside, you know, and my, my dad could out 
talk and know about any, you know, patch of forest or mountainside or sky than, than, um, than many people who've lived in, in that state for many, many years, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and when my parents didn't know the answer of a gardening question or an outdoor question, they absolutely were curious about it. And they, they were excited to know the answer about it. So they modeled for me what it was like to, to not only be curious about the land and the environment that they're living in, but that also showed me like how it's also a very vulnerable thing. And we see what happens with our lawmakers and just anybody we interact with now. You can see that from a mile away when someone you're talking to isn't at all curious about anything else besides themselves <laughs> or isn't willing to admit they don't know all the answers and they're, they're willing to, to find out the answers, you know, like, I can't tell you how many students have said it's so refreshing when I say, I don't know the answer to that question about the narwhal. I will ask my biologist friends, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like they're just, they're not used to seeing a full professor say, I would like to know more, you know, which is so wild to me. Like we should be the models for seeking more knowledge and, and not saying we know it all, you know, this book, since it's been out, I wish I could do, there's, there's more knowledge now that I have about narwhals that I, that didn't make it into this book because scientists are also learning more about narwhals. So I just, um, I guess I would just reiterate what you were saying is that, um, how we interact with plants and animals absolutely has a direct effect on how we think of ourselves on the planet, that the world doesn't revolve around us, you know, that we are definitely a part of a larger, um, a larger world that we need to also do our part to take care of too, because we love it, not because we're afraid, but because we love it. One of the, the points of connection you point to a lot between humans and uh, other organisms, whether it's, it's plants or animals, is on names. Um, and not just the Latin names, but you know the wonderful and joyful wordplay found in how <laughs> humans name and describe the natural world. Um, and at the end of the book, the eroding recognition of species names is something you describe as a troubling proxy for the state of humans' relationship with the world around us. And, you know, you, you catalog really delightful names for, you know, the corpse flower and then firefly varieties, you know, the shadow ghost, the wiggle dancer. <laughs> what, what can make names so delightful and, and what, is, what importance do they have in connecting us with the non-human world? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think, oh gosh, you're actually touching upon, I don't know if I can answer this and fit it all in the podcast because I'm actually writing a bigger kind of essay on the importance of names and connecting through the, so you exactly, it's like you're reading, it's a, like, are you reading my desktop right now? You know, like, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you'd see all kinds of ridiculous tabs open on, on, you know, the blanket octopus and, you know, all, all where my um, interests lie. Um, but <laughs> You know, I think, and I have pages and pages on it that I'm that I'm still working on revising. But, gosh, you hit on something that's so so near and dear to me. I think what I can say, though, in a, in a short amount of space, is the importance of names is absolutely, I think, connected to how we take care of each other and how we take care of um, creatures and and every living thing on this planet, like. So, for example, 
I think it's harder. I don't know the science behind it, but maybe that study has a little bit to do with it that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I think it would be harder to know that, you know, so for example, um, you mentioned the firefly names. There's different varieties of fireflies in North America. There's some of my favorites are there's there's one variety called the tiny Lucy. You know, um, the the there's also fireflies called the heebie-jeebies and um, the Texas tinies, the treetop flashers. Wow! I think once you get to know these names, and imagine if you had a childhood where kind of your friends were called shadow ghosts or the treetop flashers or, (laughs) you know, the wiggle dancers, I think you would be less, I don't know for sure, but my hunch is that I think you would be less inclined to do violence on, on where, on something where the shadow ghosts live, you know, Mm. or where where the shadow ghosts, what the shadow ghosts needs to survive. Because you know that, uh, you know those creatures by name, you know? And so you see this happen with humans all over. When you dehumanize a group or give them a different name to dehumanize them, it's easier to say, oh, well, that was a, a, a casualty of war, you know, because they're nameless. That you don't know that, oh, there's a little boy in Iraq named Kava and his mother pulls up a little blue blanket and tickles the bottom of his chin. You know, it's harder to say, oh, we're going to eradicate, we're going to decimate Kava's village. You know what I mean? But it's easier to say, oh, just this segment of Iraq is going to be just wiped out. You know, that kind of thing. It's it's easier Mm -hmm. to do that when you don't know the names. And again, I don't think my dad was doing this on purpose by any means, but as a way to get to know and to feel like his daughters were home. Maybe it was a way for him to feel like he was home as a as an immigrant in the late 60s here in America. He took it upon himself to just want to learn everything about Chicago. He wanted to know everything about what grows in Illinois. You know, can you grow mangoes? Oh, the answer is no, <laughs> you know. Um <laughs> And, uh, but, but instead he didn't know that you could grow roses and that was his and my mother's first garden together in Chicago. They were so sad they couldn't grow a lot of their favorite tropical fruits, but they discovered their shared passion for growing roses. And they, I mean, they had one of the most beautiful rose gardens, um, in Chicago. Neighbors would come over and ask for snips and and things like that. And, I, I just think so when when I and I grew up with a long last name that that many found unpronounceable and um, you know I would kind of just smile and take it make jokes of it you know laugh at other people's jokes but I realize now and it's taken me a while sadly to to understand this but that was their way I think of making themselves feel better that oh they don't know this is a name from South Asia, you know, or from South South India. They don't know everything there is to know about the planet. They don't know how to pronounce this. So instead of just saying, oh gosh, there's something I don't know, let me make fun of this little girl's name, you know, that kind of thing, and make a joke out of it. Give me a nickname that I don't want, and I felt too shy to ask, you know, or to not do, you know, that kind of thing. So when we call things and animals and plants when we don't give them names it's easier to dismiss humans it's easier to kind of make decisions about 
what parking lot goes where, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing when you destroy a group of birds and, oh, they're called blue warblers. And if you can only hear their sound and um, if you can hear a bird that says, sweet, 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 I'm so sweet, 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 sweet. <laughs> Anything where you don't, I, I just feel, you know, Rachel Carson has a great quote and she says, the more we get to know about plants and animals on this planet, the less appetite we have for destruction. So I think that kind of goes to it with this business of naming, like when we can actually say, oh, they're actual birds that live there. And uh, I'm going to pause before I make a parking lot out of that forest, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that is fascinating and very much look forward to reading that essay when it comes out. Thank you. One of the final chapters in the book, final essays, is on monarch butterflies. And when Jen and I were planning for this podcast, we both immediately thought of the beginning of this essay as a section that we would love um, for you to read if you're willing. I found this, this uh, it, it starts, you know, as listeners will hear, with a description of a phenomenon taking place over Lake Superior. Yes. And then this description and then where you, where you take it, I found just so breathtaking. And so I was wondering if you'd mind reading the beginning of that um, essay, Monarch Butterfly. Great. Thank you. Yeah, this is... um. A phenomenon that happens, and I think scientists still don't actually, you know, they haven't been able to pinprick it. So it's kind of, it's so exciting how this is kind of like knowledge in real time, you know, that kind of thing. Probably maybe by the time this podcast comes out, there will be new information on this kind of um, movement in in monarchs. So here we go. This is the opening of, uh, I'm just going to read two chapters from the opening of my uh, chapter on monarch butterflies. Monarch Butterfly. There's a spot over Lake Superior where migrating butterflies veer sharply. No one understood why they make such a quick turn at that specific place until a geologist finally made the connection. A mountain rose out of the water in that exact location thousands of years ago. These butterflies and their offspring can still remember a mass they've never seen, sound waves breaking just so and fly out of the way. How do they pass on this knowledge of the invisible? Does this message transmit through the song they sing to themselves on their first wild nights, spinning inside a chrysalis? Or in the music kissed down their backs as they crack themselves open to the morning sun? Does milkweed whisper instructions to them as it scatters in the meadow? Maybe that is the loneliest kind of memory to be forever altered by an invisible kiss, a reminder of something long gone and crumbled, like that mountain in Lake Superior. Perhaps in the distant future, a sound that resembles my voice will haunt my great-great-great-great-great-grandchild, a sound she can't quite place, can't quite name. That sound will prick at her and prick at her, and so will the particular sensation of a sap-sticky pine needle, That chalky kiss, smudging her hands with a pale color found only in the crepuscular hour of the day. That image of the monarchs bending around an invisible mountain that once stood was one of many sections in the book that just truly left me awed. Um, And I found myself in that chapter and, and throughout thinking about my own parents and my own mm. family and about finding, you know, as you would talk about your mother and, and father, um, who sound just so 
lovely and remarkable. And thinking about finding my own mother putting out a little pile of nuts in the garage last year at Christmas time <laughs> and asking her what she was doing. And she explained to me it was Christmas for the mouse too. Um, oh, or of my, my you know, my dad planting planting trees in the yard that he'll hope will be there for, you know, many generations to come. And, and thinking about this, this essay of, of the ways in which, you know, generations even long ago that we didn't know have shaped how we understand the natural world today and how our actions will will shape how future generations think about it and not to mention the what's there for them to 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 live in as well and i'm i'm curious whether you know you've gone all around the country doing readings and and presentations and this book has been read and beloved by people you know all over the world and i'm curious uh, when you when you speak with readers and you receive correspondence do people end up telling you a lot of personal stories in response to hearing yours yeah yeah i'm still well, first thing, I'm still just so enamored. I'm thinking of like a mouse Christmas um, from here. <laughs> from your mom. <laughs> so the mice cute. are still there in large quantities. So. <laughs> I love that. I just have to pause for a second and just let me sit with that. That's so cute. I just love you. I adore your mom. Oh, my goodness. So sweet. Um, yeah, you know, kind of the... The amazing thing, I'm just now getting kind of out and about um, in person, but one thing I have noticed um, more so than my poetry is that, yes, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like one of the most common things I I get from um, reader emails um, and uh, interactions with people who've come to my readings is um, they... Something in this book, I don't know exactly how, uh, but I'm so grateful for it unlocks their childhood memories of the outdoors and it could be you know uh, at the side of a of a playground in an inner city it can be in a in a giant pasture outside of their grandmother's backyard and in central oklahoma you know um and it could be kind of like in a more tropical landscape of of miami you know that kind of thing but everybody is excited. It's, it's contagious. You know, I think wonder is contagious. Awe and astonishment is contagious. And um, I think this book has served as kind of like an invitation to say, gosh, I remember this, or I, I did this with fireflies, or did you ever see this kind of firefly? Or uh, I remember climbing this mountain at sunset and, and wanting to, and oftentimes it's the most heartwarming stories, oftentimes involving siblings or or parents who aren't around anymore but they haven't they hadn't even thought about a particular outdoor memory about them in so long and so I just feel so grateful that for whatever reason my book served as kind of a conduit and a spark to kind of get them thinking kind of again about again not to ignore sadness or grief or strife or um or hurt in the world but it's a time to kind of say hey I I had this happy memory filed in in the back of my mind and and I want to, I want to share it with you, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I just think, gosh, we're in a pandemic and I'm so glad to have that connection again. I'm so glad that it's those, those kind of happy outdoor times are being unlocked for people who've been inside for so long, you know? So I'm just immensely grateful that people also feel comfortable in sharing that with me. You know, I know, I know that wouldn't be the case for for just any random person, but I think I think they can feel it through the airwaves or in person to see the look on my face that these stories are so meaningful. This is these are the stories that help me remember that we're human and we have more in common than people would like us to believe. 
You describe an, an oceanic a teacher who once told you never to use an exclamation mark unless writing out the phrase, watch out, there's a bus. Um, and <laughs> yes. happily for all of us, you ignored his advice um, altogether. And, and you know, likewise, I read in an interview with you that you've been asked at times for a serious quote unquote author photo, I guess, unsmiling and and good for you, you refused. And I I just loved that. And the joy in this book is likewise, you know, characteristically irrepressible (laughs) and and contagious, as you said. Thank you. To close, we were wondering if you would share with us some of the animals or natural delights that have captured your imagination and attention recently. Oh, yeah. Gosh, what a fun question. Oh, my goodness. And yeah, just to speak to what you were saying before, uh, I think there's only so much an editor can do to kind of um, tamp down kind of my my general dorky ebullience, you know, like I think my editors realized, well, she's not going to stop with the exclamation. So let's just let her do it. <laughs> you know? But uh, but also, you know, I mean, that that is that is me. And I'm so grateful for that. Because I, I can only especially this is nonfiction here, I can only put out kind of who I am. And like I said, I didn't see there was literally I can't think of a single Asian American smiling in any way, shape, or form in my childhood that was depicted in books or TV or movies. Isn't that wild? Like, so I I just, it's shocking. It's shocking. And it's so like my, my sons can't even believe it because they grew up with Dora the Explorer, you know, like all kinds of, you know, superheroes that are super diverse, but it is so strange to not see anybody who looks like you smiling outside. So yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very purposeful choice to, mm-hmm. to always be smiling. I mean, that is who I am as well. So, so, and so it's a kind of a win-win there. I don't have to pretend anything um, about, about that, but I would say um, the things that are making me smile, I can, I can already feel my cheeks going up just at the question. <laughs> it's so, it's like, are you kidding me? I have, um, I'm only trying to kind of narrow it down here. Well, spring in Mississippi means the emergence of hummingbirds. And I Mm. cannot even tell you that. um, So here we know that when the, it's a native plant, when the red buckeye starts blooming, it's bright scarlet kind of uh, blossoms. That means you better get dust off your bird feeders because the hummingbirds are back from Mexico and South America. (laughs) Like, and sure enough, I've only seen one, but that means they're back. And, um, you know, I've always I've always loved hummingbirds, but here where we are in northern Mississippi, um, every September there's kind of um, you know we have a hummingbird festival here. It's this is one of the pit stops of the migratory hummingbirds of the East Coast. It's like they drink up, they get as full as their little bellies can take before they make that giant flight to the over the Gulf of Mexico. And I, I I never knew that when I decided to live here, but it's been one of the greatest joys of my life is to say goodbye to them in September, early September, and then to welcome them back with a vengeance in early April. I don't know how to describe it, except it's like green, large green sequins suddenly just zipping by your head, and it's the <laughs> most iridescent. It's just the most gorgeous shade of emerald, so that is coming, and we had kind of, I mean, like everybody, we're still in a pandemic, so it's just been a depressing winter. So when you first see that electric green zip past your eye, you know, it's like, yes, spring is here. You know, soon summer will be back. So 
Hummingbirds are absolutely what's delighting me now. And and we have a community garden here at the University of Mississippi. Our, I mean, our town has a community garden, and I have some of my graduate students. We have a plot this year called Sprout. We named it. <laughs> and uh, and um, the past two weeks have been the first times that we've been able to get into the dirt, dig in, and, you know, get our get our hands dirty and plant blackberries. And we're going to have blackberries in the summer, so I can't wait for that. Mm. Um, and there's something so electrifying about sharing gardening and the joys and the dramas of gardening with a bunch of your students, mm-hmm. you know, kind of outside a classroom and, and stuff like that. And I'm learning so much from them um, as well. Several of them have gardening experience on their own. So it's just so nice to work over a little 16 by 16 foot plot of land here um, in the springtime. So that's also bringing me great joy too. It's it's joyful just to hear about it. That sounds so delightful um, and just incredible. You can get out in there and garden with your students. No better, no better classroom than that. Yeah. You, you've talked a little bit already about some of your inspirations, um, both uh, non-human and, and human. Um, and I was wondering if you had any thinkers or works or books or films that have been particularly influential for you either, you know, early on or, or more recently that you would want to share? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let me see. As far as recent, well, I've been, you know, again, I'm kind of a nerd. So um, as a kid, um, cartoons were okay, but they, that's not what delighted me. I loved watching, you know, I mean, I've been watching Sir Attenborough for as long as I can remember, you know, I mean, there was programs in the 70s and 80s. I think it was just called Nature. I think this nature with an exclamation oh with an exclamation point so <laughs> this so there you go um there was a program called nature so I remember that that was very formative and I just remember getting my little you know whatever snack I had that day and tuning <laughs> into nature just wrapped you know um but as far as um current books a book that's on my nightstand has basically been on my nightstand since 2016 or so whenever it came out first is um this book called braiding sweetgrass by Robin mm-hmm. Wall Kimmerer oh, yeah. Do you know this? Yes, it's just, mm-hmm. no, I, it's I just, amazing. it's so beautiful. Her, just even on a sentence level, but more just, um, so on a technical sentence level, it's so beautiful, but also it's the kind of book that helps me daydream when I don't feel like I don't have time or I can't, I need to be soothed a little bit. Um, Kimmer's voice just soothes me. And, uh, I just return to that book over and over again. Um, Brian Doyle has passed away now. I love his short essays on the outdoors. If you don't know that, I would absolutely look into Brian Doyle's writings. He's one who absolutely makes me laugh out loud. He brings humor and tenderness to writing about his family and the outdoors. He passed away from brain cancer not too long ago in 2017. So I'm, I'm so sad to not have his words anymore. But I also loved, you know, when I was studying nature writing in, in college, I loved probably the first one I kind of just fell, fell in adoration with was Terry Tempest Williams' description of birds in hmm. Refuge. So that's a book that I continue to teach in my own environmental writing classes um, and environmental literature classes, just because it's kind of I feel maybe some people think it's quaint now to kind of write and reflect about bird watching with a grandma. But to me that I keep going back to that book for the, the quietness and the kind of the, 
the worries and pain, you know, without giving too much away, um, there's worries of uh, breast cancer throughout the book. And I hadn't really seen a woman's body written in that way with also the joy and attention to birds. I know it doesn't sound like a, it's, you know, if you, I'm sure many people are familiar with this, this quintessential book, Refuge, but it, it is just absolutely, um, I, I just am in awe of the arrangement of it, how I feel like I'm bird watching along with Terry Tempest Williams, and also how I feel like I kind of am so invested in her family's health, you know. Um, so that's if you were to sum it all up in terms of what I'm looking at or reading now and in the past, that, that would be it. Richard Attenborough, a show called Nature with an exclamation point, <laughs> and um, Terry Tempest Williams and Robin Wall Kimmerer. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations. Amy Nizuka Matato, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. You, these were amazing and just such perceptive questions. Of course, I wouldn't expect anything less, but it's just so such a delight to, to kind of bounce these ideas off of you. It's like you, you really, it's kind of spookily um, accurate how you kind of can look into my laptop and um, kind of see what I'm thinking. <laughs> so so well, thank you. We are so excited for your forthcoming essay and, um, and forthcoming books too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Amy Netsukumatatil and her work. Thanks for listening.